Welcome to the Resonate Boise Sermons Podcast. Today, you'll be hearing from our site pastor, Jonah Link, as he continues our sermon series going through the Sermon on the Mount. How are we doing this morning? Dude, there are so many of us traveling, and Tori and I actually head out tomorrow. Mark heads out tomorrow, right? So, man, we're about to be thin these next couple of weeks, but if you've been able to get away in vacation with your family, I'm so glad you've been able to do that. I hope it's been refreshing for your souls and exciting to be able to interact with family that you might have not seen for a while. I know the Dijanova's got to see a bunch of family, and so, yeah, if you haven't been able to vacation yet, get out of here. Like, Boise's incredible, like Taylor's saying. I love Boise. I grew up here. It's awesome. But get away for a little bit. Refresh your souls. Seek things of the Lord in spaces that aren't here, and it's usually incredibly helpful for you. One other thing that's been helpful for Tori and I as we've just, like, continued to grow in our marriage and grow in, um, in our understanding of what each other loves to participate in, we've figured out that we love a show. It's called Law & Order SVU. I don't know if any of you guys watch that. Um, it's pretty dark in some ways because SVU stands for Special Victims Unit, and there's some things that are pretty dark about the crimes that are committed on that show. But in reality, Tori and I love the drama of something has happened, let's figure out who did it. And I don't know if any of you guys are true crime people, and if you don't say anything, I know you're lying because I know a lot of you are. And so um, what happens in an SVU episode is typically you have a moment where the crime is committed before uh, the theme song plays. And at this point, Levi, every time the theme song comes on, he does his little dance thing. Um, he, he just knows it, because we were watching it while he was in the womb. We still watch it today. So how it works is you have the crime that's committed, the song theme song happens, and then the rest of the show is essentially just trying to figure out who done it. And naturally, as the viewer, we know who's done it, so we're trying to like figure out how it got to that point. Typically in these episodes, because of the natures of these crimes that are committed, more often than not, there's somebody that's related to, really close to the victim, that is incredibly, incredibly angry, and rightfully so. We'll watch these episodes and be like, man, your anger is just. What was done to this person, this victim, was completely unjust, and therefore I am angry. And so we go about watching the show, and more often than not, that individual that loves deeply the victim, some, whatever has happened to them, they're angry enough to where they want to do something about it. So we were watching an episode literally last night where this 25-year-old had something incredibly horrible done to her, and the very next scene after the theme song is the father being just irate. He's so incredibly angry that this has happened to his daughter, and he knows that there is a group of people that it probably, like the... Um, The person who committed the crime is more than likely living in this group home. So he knows exactly where the um, perpetrator probably lives. So him and his buddies take baseball bats and they go trying to find this guy. And I'll leave you to imagine what happens next. But the reality is, as we're watching that show, my heart isn't feeling bad for the people that they're going after, right? As you think about certain instances, maybe certain true crime shows that you watch or anything for that matter, when you're watching the movie, the show, the situation unfold, when someone has done something wrong to one person, 
you inherently want justice for the person that was wronged, right? Right? Or am I off base here? I, I think I'm right. Like we all want justice to some extent to take place. And how we go about that is different from person to person. In the show that Tor and I watched last night, it involves some baseball bats. For others, it involves other things. But the thing that I want us to focus on today is there is something innate in us humans that is sinful and broken that desires to take revenge in a way that is not biblical, that is not according to the way of Jesus. And so at this point in the Sermon on the Mount that we come to today, Jesus is going to lay out a pretty radical way by which Christians are to respond when evil is done to them. And when I came up to this text, I was like, man, we've covered some really hard topics in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, I've told a couple of you that was the hardest sermon I think I've ever preached. I was more nervous than I've ever been. I prepared more. I prayed more because it was just a really incredibly heavy topic. So coming into this week, I was like, oh, revenge, retaliation, this is easy. Like, this is going to be super easy to prepare, to preach. Um, in some ways, re relieved, I get to preach through this. But then I started reading the text, and I was like, oh my gosh. What Jesus is commanding of his followers is an insane way to live according to the world's standards. And so what Jesus proposes I want to call an otherworldly standard of response when evil is done to you. So let me show you. We're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42, if you have your copy of Scripture. It says, this is what Jesus says to the crowd. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here we go. We have a similar setup to the last one, two, three, four, five sections. Last four or five sections that we've talked about, there's been a setup where Jesus says, this is how you have heard it said quotes Old Testament law, and then jumps into what he says is the right way to understand that law. This text today is a little bit different than the weeks past in that Jesus takes this Old Testament law that was intended to be interpreted um, one way, and he takes the misinterpretation of the scribes and Pharisees and almost rolls with what they are trying to communicate and says how you're supposed to live within your intrapersonal relationships. And so the scribes and Pharisees, they misinterpret God's law once again. And now Jesus comes in and he says, hey, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And it is different than what the scribes and Pharisees are teaching the Jewish people at the time. So in verse 38, where Jesus says, right here, he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a quote from Leviticus chapter 24. There's also two other places in the first five books of the Bible, in the Mosaic Law, where it is said. But the reality of this law is very different than the way the scribes and Pharisees took it. So if you were to read through Leviticus 24, it's just a couple of verses, you're going to see an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, when it comes to retaliating against someone that has wronged another individual. You're also going to see a life for a life. 
the standard at that point in time was whatever you did to someone, that thing would be done to you. And if you want to think about it this way, the crime um, has to equal the time. The crime has to equal the time. And so what was typical at that period of time was that individuals that uh, committed a crime, often the people that were retaliating or handing down punishment would be harsher than they were supposed to be. And so what God is doing with this law, specifically in Leviticus 24, is he's giving a blueprint for the judges of Israel to hand out punishment that go for all of the Israelites. They're intended to be for every single individual. But what the scribes and Pharisees do is they take this law that's intended to be used by the judges to hand out punishment for people that break God's law, and they apply it to a personal relationship. What's intended for everyone to be implemented by the judges, they take down to the personal, like person-to-person relationship. And what's interesting is this is what the Pharisees do. The first thing is they take it from this civil punishment, this civil level of leadership and capacity, and bring it all the way down to the personal relationship. So instead of a judge handing down a punishment using Leviticus chapter 24, they would essentially be like, okay, someone wronged me, therefore I get to do that same wrong to the person that wronged me. That's what the Pharisees are saying. And secondarily, they make this into a personal duty. Are you following with me? They make it into a personal duty. If you are a Jewish person at the time and someone wrongs you, it is your responsibility to do the same thing to them. It's just what you do based on their interpretation of God's law. And this is where I want to have a little bit of a candid conversation for a minute. We've week over week looked at the scribes and Pharisees' misinterpretation of God's law and thrown a ton of shade at them. Honestly, and that's what Jesus does in Scripture too. Like, you guys are so wrong. I cannot believe you would misinterpret God's word. I cannot believe you would take something that was meant for good and turn it on its head, which is completely the opposite of what Jesus says to do at this point in time. Like, how could you guys be so silly, so naive? But the reality is you can look on any sort of social media. You can get on YouTube. You can get on Spotify, listen to sermons. You can listen to all sorts of stuff where preachers are doing the exact same thing today. They are twisting God's word to mean something that it was never intended to mean. Whether it's to exhort people to give to their cause through the prosperity gospel, or whether it is to promote a political ideology that is far from what God's word says. You see it all the time. My job, even, is to bring you God's word in the best way that I know how, which I'm learning. I get that. I'm learning. But at the same time, James 3.1 talks about I'm going to be judged with greater strictness based on what I teach you. And so I need to handle this word with care. And in the same breath, all of you sitting here, and everyone that's not here even, study your Bibles. Know God's word so when you hear things that are contrary to what God teaches in his word, you can refute it. Just like if I bring you something, you're like, "Mm, Jonah, that doesn't quite make sense. You can come to me and gracefully and truthfully like say, hey, I think God's word might say something different. Let's, let's chat about it. But the exhortation I want to hand you is the scribes and Pharisees did it wrong time and time again. I don't want that to be us. Let's go to our Bibles. Let's know our Bibles well. 
So this is purely just a moment where I wanna encourage you to study your Bibles, know what God's word says and what God's intent was in putting those pages on this book. But beyond that, what does Jesus have to say about retaliation? What does Jesus have to say about revenge? Because based on what the Jewish people knew about retaliation up to this point, is it's their job to hand out punishment to people who did something wrong against them. That is their understanding. And Jesus comes in and gives them an otherworldly response. Because like we said, like we established, the original intent was to, for the judges to have the a blueprint to hand out punishments for all people, all the Israelites. And the Pharisees turned it into a law of individual relationship. And likewise, Jesus, his response isn't to go back to Leviticus 24 and say, no, this is what it's intended, do that. He brings it down to the personal level. So this is Jesus's response to them. And so we'll start in verse 39. The first part of verse 39 says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. What do you guys think that means? Like, I'm going to talk about it, but shoot me out an answer or something. Like, what do you think do not resist the one who is evil is talking about here? Anything? I can just say it, but it's a little bit more fun if you guys interact with me a little bit, you know? But what Jesus is talking about here is very, very different than what we might think. At face value, when I first read this, one of the first thoughts that came into my mind was, is Jesus calling us to a life of passivity? Where if something is done wrong to an individual, we just walk away. Like, is Jesus calling us to a life of passivity? And I would call that a pretty big misrepresentation of what God is calling Christians to do. God's value of Christians bringing justice into this broken world. If you want to write this down, Psalm 82 verse 3 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Jesus also resisted evil in the temple when he flips the tables and drives out the money changers. He resisted it. He resisted evil in that moment. You also see moments where like two weeks ago at the venue, there was a guy that was definitely intoxicated out on the corner and uh, there was a group of us here that were freaking out a little bit, like, what is going on with this dude? And so Daniel and I end up going out and talking to him. And my inclination was to talk to him about Jesus, to figure out like where he's at spiritually, when there was clearly a, a moment where I needed to step in and protect the people in this room. But my mind went straight to like, man, what is, what is Jesus doing in this guy's heart? Is he doing anything? And I came back in with Daniel after chatting with him the first time and got him some water and whatnot. And I prompted the question to us in the room, just like, hey, how, how should we respond here? How should we respond to this situation? And basically everyone completely disagreed with me and that was totally, totally okay because I felt like on the back end of the situation, I was definitely in, in the wrong a little bit. And so their perspective was like, hey, that guy could be a huge threat to what's going on in here. He's intoxicated. We later fi figured out like, he might have had a weapon on him. And so the reality was like we had to protect the people in the room and my mind didn't necessarily go to that. 
But what God's word says is that we need to be able to use the authorities for their intended purpose. I look at Romans 13, 1 through 2. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And so what happened in the venue, my, my mind wasn't to use the people that God's intended to keep us safe. My, my thought was just to go be a friend to this guy, which isn't necessarily wrong. But the view that Jesus is bringing to, her, to us about resisting evil, it doesn't have to do with protecting others. It has to do with your personal relationship with another individual is the point that I'm trying to make. It's not about protecting the individuals in the room. That's not what this text is talking about because we know that that is good and that is of the Lord. What he is talking about, though, is how you are to interact with someone who harms, is harming you personally. And Jesus says, hey, don't resist evil. And then he gives us five different examples that we're going to walk through one by one. The first one, it's, Jesus says, hey, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them and let them slap the other one, basically. And we look at that and we're like, whoa. Like, Jesus, you're telling me that if I get hit in the face... I'm just supposed to turn my cheek and let them slap the other side of my face. Well, the reality was at this point in time, uh, a backhanded slap would have occurred and it would have been an extreme insult. It's essentially what it meant in that culture. The, the backhanded slap was the biggest insult you could give someone. And to us today, that looks vastly different, right? Like if you're pissed at someone and you want to insult them, you're not going to backhand them. You might, I don't know, but it's not definitely not an insult, insult right? It's probably... More so, you want to cause harm to the individual. For us today, you can just get on Twitter. You can get on Instagram. You can see comments galore of people hurling insults. I don't know like, what your middle school experience was like, girls, but I heard gossip is a really big thing at that stage of life, maybe high school more so. But people hurl insults at you all the time throughout your life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, God's word even says, hey, you're going to be insulted. You're going to. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. So what does that mean for us? What is this example he's trying to show his disciples as they are listening to this? He says, turn the other cheek. Let them hurl another insult at you. He's essentially saying, who cares what they have to say? Who cares what the broken world, the people that don't know Jesus have to say about you, your character, who you are? Because it's completely contrary, more than likely, to what God says in Scripture about who you are. And it makes me think about when uh, my brother and I were growing up. Daniel is like 14 months younger than me, and so naturally I'm physically bigger. I'm going to try to drive him a little crazy. I'm probably beating him up a little bit, probably calling him names. And I'm trying to get a rise out of Daniel. Like, I'm just trying to piss him off a little bit. This is just what kids do. And if you didn't do this, I don't know what your childhood was like. But this is how mine was with five siblings. And so with Daniel, I would hurl insults at him, and I was trying to get retaliation from him. I was trying to get him to react, to try to fight back, whatever the situation might have been. Whenever Daniel would say, dude, I just don't have it in me today. I don't care, man. Like, call me whatever you want. Hit me. Do whatever. I just don't care. I just found myself stopping 
retaliate, like stopping instigating because I was like, it's no fun if you're not retaliating. And I wonder if this is a similar situation to what Jesus is talking about right here. Like if someone wants to insult you, like let them, don't give them the joy and the satisfaction of you retaliating. Don't make it worse than it already is by hurling an insult back. Don't do that. But what Jesus is ultimately going to get to, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit, he's actually calling us to love the person that's insulting us, that is giving us the backhanded slap of an insult, which is crazy. It's absolutely a crazy standard that Jesus is going to set for us. Then we see verse 40. Let's go to the next one. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. We don't have cloaks. We don't have tunics. So what are those? Uh, they wore, typically wore three layers of clothing. They wore like an undergarment. They wore the tunic on top of that and the cloak over the top of that. They wore layers. The cloak on the outside basically kept people alive. It was the thickest piece of clothing, and so most law at the time would not allow you to sue someone for their cloak because it would probably kill them. But the tunic was like the next best thing. And so what Jesus is saying here is if you um, do something wrong and someone sues you for your tunic, you give that to him gladly. But on top of that, in the spirit of reconciliation, give him your cloak as well. Like show them the restoration and the um, response of giving everything for the sake of reconciling with your brother or sister. Give them your cloak as well. And that makes no sense, right? When you read that you're, and you understand what is actually going on here, it doesn't make any sense in our world. Why in the world would you give more than you owe to someone? other than you're crazy or generous, I don't know. But it doesn't make any sense. But what Jesus is showing here is we have to desire reconciliation with our brother or sister or the random person that you wronged in hopes of showing them that Jesus loves them even more than we could by giving them our cloak, even giving them the last thing that we have to keep us alive. It radically shows that Jesus was willing to give everything for us as well. And then verse 41, another example. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This is another cultural example. The Romans are incredibly oppressive towards Jews at this point in time. The Roman soldiers, there was Roman law that stated if the Roman soldier was walking down the road and they didn't want to carry their heavy pack anymore, they could summon a, a Jew off the side of the road, say, hey, come carry my pack for me, and they had to carry it a mile. That was literally just a law that they had to follow. So if you could imagine, you are this Jewish person. You've watched these Roman soldiers murder your friends, treat you horribly, uh, just do all of these horrible injustices to your people, and you have to go carry his bag for him, you're going to be pissed, right? Like you're going to be so absolutely frustrated that you have to go help this individual that is causing your people, yourself, your family so much pain and affliction. Like you're not going to want to do it, right? And so you probably walk over, you pick it up, throw it over your back, and you begin walking, probably trying to stay away from the Roman soldier. You're probably thinking, man, I hate this guy. I can't believe he's making me do this. This is so unfair. This is so unjust. 
You get to the end of your mile, counting every step, drop it at the Roman soldier's feet and give him a look just enough so that he, so that he knows you hate him and you despise him, but not enough to, so that he kills you. And you, you walk away and you go do your thing. And what Jesus says, it doesn't make any sense. Again, you are to go a second mile. Take that back a second mile. You're not required to at all, but you should go a second mile. And maybe on that second mile, you tell him about Jesus. You serve him joyfully, even though he's done so much wrong against you. That doesn't make any sense, right? It makes zero sense for us to go a second mile, for them to go a second mile when someone has so clearly just done so many injustices against them. They're forced to walk a mile. Jesus says, go a second mile. Go a second mile. My mom would say, growing up, go the extra mile all the time. And legitimately, I didn't know until this week that that's what she meant. And that's what she was referencing. Like, I would take out the trash or something because she told me to. But then I would, like, not put the tra- a new trash bag in the trash can. And she'd be like, Jonah, go the extra mile. Like, I didn't tell you to put another trash bag in. But you need to do it anyways. That's just what you do. <laughs> like, go the extra mile. Like, do more than is asked of you. And that resembles a heart posture of Jesus, because he went far above and beyond what he was required to do. Verse 42 is the next piece. Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. These are the last two situations that Jesus puts in front of the, of the disciples. Is he saying that you have to give away everything and become poor? in that moment. No, not in this text. That's not what he's saying. But we do see an example of the rich young ruler, right? Jesus says, hey, you need to sell all your possessions and follow me. He's like, I can't do it. And he walks away. So maybe Jesus asked that of you at some point in time, but that's not what this text is necessarily talking about. But what he is saying is you need to be so open-handed with your resources and so attentive to the spirit at work in your heart and in your life that if you see someone in need, your inclination is to help them. Your inclination is to want to help them in that moment. That should be what we desire. And I don't think Jesus is saying that you just need to give to anyone and everyone. Because 2 Thessalonians 3 even talks about, hey, if, if, he, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Like there's a reality where Jesus isn't trying to condone laziness in people, but the people that are hurting and in need of help, that the Christian, the the Christ-like would step in and help them. And this idea is showing this greater thought that the love of Jesus just looks so different than the world expects of us. Makes me think of, uh, I already lost my treasure in heaven because I've told this story a couple times, but... Um, I was downtown, like, this was probably four years ago now. I think Tori was with me at the time, and we were just getting some Chipotle. And you know, like, between Chipotle and Panda right there, there's some homeless people that typically hang out right there. And as I was walking up to go grab us lunch, I felt the spirit, like, just saying, hey, buy this guy lunch. I was like, all right. So I walk up to this guy. I'm like, hey, I'm going to get Chipotle. Do you want some lunch? And he goes, no, I want Panda. I was like, Sir. Like, I'm offering to give you a free lunch, and you're telling me, like, no, I don't want that. I want this. You don't have the right, (laughs) is what my heart was saying. And I was like, okay, if the Lord's, like, leading me to give you a meal, 
get you what you want. What do you want from Panda, sir? And then he told me his order. I go get my food. We eat. I go get his. I bring it out to him. And I hand him his bag with his food in it. I stand there for a second trying to make some conversation, and he opens it up, and he says, that's not what I ordered. And I was like, bro, are you serious? Like, I'm, I'm getting pissed. Like, Jesus, why would you have me give this guy food if he's going to be so ungrateful? Like, I thought this guy needed food. And he probably did need food, but I also needed to learn something in that moment. The Lord taught me, hey, people might not be grateful, but my obedience to Jesus is far more important than how anyone responds to what the Lord's telling me to do. And so in that moment, though I was frustrated at him, it took me about a week to understand, okay, the Lord was teaching me something through this homeless dude's ungratefulness. But the idea that Jesus is getting at is we have to have this otherworldly type of love towards people that don't deserve it. Because we don't. We don't deserve this otherworldly love of Jesus that he gives to us, right? And this whole thing that we've went through, these five different examples, this is exactly how Jesus lived himself. When we look at the text and we understand how big of a and lofty of a standard it is, then we think about the life of Jesus and we're like, Jesus literally did this. Jesus turned the other cheek when he was beaten and mocked and scorned before the cross. He didn't retaliate. He continued to love these people. He continued to go to the cross even though people were hurling insults at him time and time again. Jesus goes even the extra mile. You look at Philippians 2 and how he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself so that we could come to the Father. Jesus lived this otherworldly way that is so countercultural to what we understand. As we read this, it's the standard that we can't live up to, ultimately. I was angry at the guy that I gave a meal to. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, give it out of love. I didn't give it out of love. I gave it in frustration and anger. That's not at all what Jesus says here. He says to give out of love, to turn the other cheek and love. All of it has to do with loving the people around you and reflecting Christ's love towards us. So I want to get to the biblical principle of all of this, which is really hard for us at times. And it's forsake yourself for the good of others. Forsake yourself for the good of others. What the entire text is talking about is your interaction with another individual. It's not about the law. It's not about any of that. It is about your interaction with someone that wrongs you. And the otherworldly standard is to forsake yourself, your, your sinful desire to get revenge, or even the godly desire to seek justice. It's not about that. What it's about is forsaking yourself for the good of others so that God might receive glory. And this idea of forsaking yourself, it's not new. It's not new for any of us. If you call yourself a Christian in the room, it's not new for you. Because the reality is you had to forsake yourself to know Jesus, right? You look at Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will 
find it. So this relationship with Jesus is built on self-denial. Granted, the cross is what, is, and Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith, don't get me wrong. But in order to know Jesus, we have to completely deny ourselves. And likewise, this isn't something that Jesus didn't do himself. He denied his rightful place at the right hand of God to come, take on human form, live the perfect life, live to the standard that Jesus calls us to that we can't achieve so that he could die on that cross so that we could have a chance at repentance and belief so that we might have a relationship with our creator. And so when I say forsake yourself for the good of others, it's exactly what Jesus did. That's what we are called to do as his followers. And so what does this look like today? What does this look like today? Man, if someone insults you, when a coworker says something bad about you, when a classmate reviles you for your faith, how, what is our response? Well, number one, it's, this life is it's not about you. It's not about you. When someone hurls an insult at you, we can't think about ourselves. This is part of forsaking ourselves for the good of others. How does your heart, how does your mind go towards the individual that is um, wronging you, acting in sin against you? Because ultimately, when you have insults hurled at you, who cares what they say because your heavenly father says something completely different? Do you believe what God has to say about you is more important than your coworker, your classmate, your friend, a random person on the street? I remember my first year on staff and I cared more about what the 18-year-old freshman said about me than my own friends. Like, why do I care so much about what these freshmen have to say to me when I know that God says something completely different about me? When you understand who God says you are, that allows you to turn the other cheek pretty easily. It allows you to turn the other cheek much more easily. Another thought, if someone were to demand you fix a situation that you broke, like you, someone sues you, someone um, says that you are due to fix this situation, how do you respond? How do you respond? Well, you go above and beyond to reconcile. I think about times that I've like borrowed my dad's stuff and broke something. I'm like, okay, I'll buy you a new one and something. Like I'll do whatever it takes to fix the situation, go above and beyond to reconcile with you. All you want is your tool back in working order, but I'm gonna go above and beyond. When I borrow something from someone, I go try to go above and beyond their expectations. So how can you go above and beyond in the spirit of reconciliation and do it in joy? That's, I think that's the ultimate hope is that we could do all of this in joy. If your boss forces you to do something that is not in your job description, how many of you guys have had that happen? I've had it happen a lot. Yeah, happens all the time. How do you do exactly what your boss tells you to do that's not a part of your job description? Do it joyfully and on the back and say, what else can I do for you? What else can I do to make your job easier, your job better, even though it's at the cost of me doing my actual job? That looks like Christ. If you sense the Spirit prompting you to give, this is where I had a conversation, I think it was Natalia at the end of our owner meeting, but Tori and I operate on the principle, if the Lord's asking us to give, if our budget's not there, I don't care. I'm going to find a way to give because if, if God's wanting me to give in this moment, he'll, he'll find a way to replenish that. 
That's just how Tori and I have always operated. Because if Jesus is Lord, if God is sovereign, and God holds all the resources in the world in the palm of his hand, he can replenish whatever I just gave very, very easily. And that goes very against wisdom and Dave Ramsey. But um, I I truly believe we need to be open-handed. We need to be open-handed and attentive to what the Spirit might be leading us to do. And it might look very different than worldly wisdom. And that's how God operates quite often, which is really frustrating for us at times that want to have control. But the ultimate principle of all of this is forsaking yourself for the good of others. Forsake yourself for the good of others. And so to conclude, I want to lead us, I want to lead us to action. I want to lead us to taking action on this principle. And so I'm not sure if you've had a situation recently where you've wanted to retaliate, wanted to get revenge, someone did something wrong to you and you're maybe even thinking right now like, okay, how can I get back at them? Like I have some ideas now. Um, That's not what I'm leading you to do. What I'm leading you to do is repent to them for your anger, which is like, that doesn't make any sense. Like someone wronged me, yet I need to repent of my anger. That's exactly what Stephen preached on. Like if you are angry within your heart, that condemns you under God's law. It's sin. So you go to that person and you repent and that person is going to be absolutely blown away because they know that they wronged you. And you can repent to them for your anger and you can seek reconciliation with them. So I want to challenge you if you need to repent to someone, do that. Nothing looks more otherworldly than repenting when someone doesn't think you like you need to, when you apologize when someone doesn't think you need to. Second thought that I have for you is what if, what if you could live this way? What if you could live how Jesus says to live? Because we often talk about, man, we're sinful, we're broken. Stuff's hard. We can't do this on our own. But that's where the Spirit of God becomes our helper, right? The Spirit of God enables us to operate in obedience when our flesh doesn't want to. When we want to retaliate, when we want to get revenge on the person that hurt us and harmed us, The Spirit of God gives us the ability to even give this person grace as we've received it. And so I want to pray to that end specifically, that the Spirit of God would give us the grace that we need, give us the ability to operate in the grace that we've received from Jesus. And if you need to repent to someone in the room, take the next couple of minutes, do that very thing. But I want us to be people that forsake ourselves for the good of others because that's what Jesus teaches here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that when we sinned against you, you didn't seek a retaliation of revenge on us. God, when we sinned against you, you gave your very son. Though we deserve everything you could give us, the death that our sin requires, God, you sent Jesus in our place. So Lord, as we meditate on these thoughts as we think about forsaking ourselves for the good of others. As people wrong us in this world, because it will happen, we will receive insults, we will have harm done to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart. Spirit, you would give us the uh, ability to respond in a way that looks like Christ. You would change our hearts and our minds to do that in joy and not out of obligation. God, you see 
the very depths of our hearts. So Lord, I pray you would uh, renew, restore the areas of sin within our hearts when it comes to this. And we would continue to go back to the cross because we're going to, we're going to mess this up. But praise you, Jesus, that we have your death, your resurrection on the cross. God, we love you. We praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.